Welcome to the Wayside Podcast. I'm Robert Killingsworth. The audio for this episode comes from a sermon that was given during one of our Sunday services. We hope you are encouraged and inspired by today's word. Good morning. Good morning to those of you in the pews, all you nine o'clockers. It's good to see you. Uh, and those of you who are watching from uh, someplace in your home, perhaps, or office, delighted you're here with us. Wow, wasn't that a long gospel lesson? I thought, I thought Joe was going to read the whole Bible, and I, <laughs> I kept wanting to go, the Word of the Lord. The word, um, but it was a good one. I don't know how many of you are watching the Netflix series called The Chosen. Uh, I actually, it's about Jesus and his life, and I actually kind of got drug into it because I figure I'd, I'd read a lot about Jesus and seen a lot of movies, but I thought, but I'm really enjoying it. And the scene from the gospel lesson was uh, actually one of the scenes, they handled that very well, the, the scene that Jill just read. So I commend that to you, but I'm going to talk about the epistle, which is much shorter. This is a homily, a sermon about human suffering, and I've entitled it, Why, When, and What? And I'm going to begin with a true story. Several years ago, I was on a walk in a small town in East Alabama where some of my family members lived. As I made my way back to their home from the walk, I passed the house of an elderly couple And I noticed that their car was parked in the driveway and that they had left their headlights on. So I went to the front door, knocked, and they came, and I told them, and I offered to take their keys, go out and turn off the lights. And they thanked me. They said they would take care of it. And so I continued my walk, and I got to the house, and shortly after began eating dinner with my family members. And as we did, as we were eating, this huge storm blew up and the winds were very strong, actually ripping off a gutter on the front of the house. And almost as quickly as it came in, it went away and only moments later, those of us gathered for dinner heard the sound of an ambulance racing down the street. So several of us got up, went out to investigate and found much to our horror that the kind old couple had gone out to turn off the lights, perhaps move their car. But as they did, that strong wind had toppled a large oak tree onto the car, killing both of them instantly. An overwhelming sense of guilt immediately pounced on me. I remember thinking if I had not told them, they would not have gone out to the car. If it had been a few minutes earlier, maybe later, maybe they would have lived. If they had taken me up on my offer, maybe it would have been me in that car and under that tree. There was obviously no way to get my head and my heart around that moment, but obviously it still haunts me to this day. And of course, when we run up against things like this, there's a bigger question, and it was a question that day looming out there, a question I did not want to ask, but I did ask in my mind and in my heart, which was simply, where was God? Could he not have held back the force of that tree from that sweet old couple? Could he not have turned off those lights before I spotted them? 
And of all people in the world, why two good people in their sunset years? These are the kinds of questions I suppose any of us ask when we are facing suffering, particularly when it is suffering visited on the innocent. I think it's natural, it's very human. In fact, I would say it's almost unnatural not to ask, where was God? In this instant, was God asleep at the switch? What's going on here? What kind of God do we worship that allows things like this to happen? The question we're asking really is, why do bad things happen to good people? Years ago, I was fortunate to spend an evening with Rabbi Harold Kushner, who had written the book. Some of you have read the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And one thing he said struck me. He said, if I wrote a book entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, it would have been very short. It would have simply have been four words, I do not know. But he hit the nail on the head. We'd like to know, wouldn't we? Tornadoes kill innocents. Investments, scams that delete retirement funds, good marriages that seem to fail, terminal illness that takes away loved ones too soon. All of them tend to make us question our faith, question our belief in a loving God. And why is a good question, it's okay to ask it, but there really is no satisfactory answer if we want to move forward as people of faith. As I think back to that tragic moment in East Alabama so many years ago, I finally had to rest in what was and what is because there's nothing I can do to change the past. So really the more important question to ask, as the good rabbi pointed out, is when? What do we do when bad things happen to good people, which they do? So for a partial answer, I'd like to turn to the lesson in Romans this morning and kind of walk through it a bit. Paul is writing the Christians in the Roman church, and they are living in the growing shadow of persecution, severe persecution. And he writes this, we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Now, I'll be honest, the first time I read this passage, I didn't much like it boast in our sufferings. I did not, and I do not, want to suffer. And when I do, I certainly don't want to be called upon to boast about it, to brag about it. But nonetheless, here it is in the lesson. Of course, when I first read this lesson, I was pretty young, many, many years ago. And frankly, I hadn't suffered much, and I had not suffered with people much. But now in over 30 years of ordained ministry, I have become well acquainted with suffering in its many forms, both personally and in the lives of others. And I've come to find and believe that Paul was exactly right. Suffering does produce endurance, and over time, endurance does produce character. When bad things happen, it gives us reason to pause, to consider the direction of our lives, who we are on the inside, who we are on the outside, how we are relating to others, how we are relating to God. But we know God, of course, holds all the cards when it comes to playing the grand drama of human history. He knows how the game will end. He has the big picture, we do not. 
what we do know is that for some reason, for whatever reason, God allows nature to be nature. He allows humans to make good choices and bad, and sometimes the fallout of mother nature and human nature is painful, and they spill over into the lives of the innocents of others. This is why the prosperity gospel is so antithetical to the biblical gospel, to believe or proclaim or suggest that just because someone gives their life to Christ or lives in a particular way, no harm or bad thing will ever come to them. Tell that to 10 of the original apostles who were martyred for their faith in following Jesus. Now, in part, theologians put these issues under a rather large umbrella called theodicy, which consists of trying to square evil and human suffering with an omnipotent and loving God, something that Sharon Cox wrote about not too long ago in her daily word. But the only way to completely avoid human suffering is to ask God to control every aspect of our lives. And as a loving parent does not seek to control his or her child, a loving God must allow some things to unfold as they unfold. And thus, the overarching process of suffering tends to whittle away at who we are, as a sculptor might work with clay, or a carver might work with wood. Thus, when bad things happen, we can step back and ask, how? How is this forming me? And Paul answers that. Character produces hope. Now, again, I'd like to bypass the suffering and get right to the character and hope, but evidently it doesn't work that way. The author Thornton Wilder, the late Thornton Wilder, wrote a novel entitled The Eighth Day about a good and decent man whose life was ruined by bad luck and hostility. He and his family suffer, although they are innocent. And, of course, in many such novels, there's a happy ending, but in this one, there is not a happy ending. Instead, what Wilder does is offer an image of a beautiful tapestry, which looked at from the right side is an intricately woven work of art, drawing together threads of different lengths and colors to make up an inspiring picture. But if you turn the tapestry over, you see a hodgepodge of many threads, some short, some long, some smooth, some cut, some knotted, going off in all kinds of different directions. And Wilder offers this as his explanation of how to respond to the reality that good people suffer. God has a pattern into which all of our lives fit. His pattern requires that some lives be twisted and knotted, some be cut short while others extend to impressive lengths, not because one thread is more deserving than another, but simply because the pattern requires it. Looked at from underneath, from our vantage point in life, God's pattern of allowing for suffering seems almost arbitrary and without design, like the underside of a tapestry. But looked at from outside this life, from God's vantage point, every twist and knot is seen to have its place in the great design that reveals itself as a work of art. It's much like the kneelers that are in front of you right now. Very beautiful on the top. If you turn them over, you would see the different directions of the threads. Now, I'm not suggesting that any suffering that you or a loved one is going through should be viewed as a work of God's art. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that 
when something bad happens, we need to remember a God who reveals himself not as a cruel puppet master, but as a loving parent who seeks and to give us the whole picture because that's the one he sees. And in whose hands we find ultimately hope, even in those dark moments. So Paul hammers his point home by saying this, writing this, and hope, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It doesn't really help to ask why, but when gets us closer to living with our suffering because ultimately the last question to ask is what? What do we do with our suffering that can bring us to a place of hope? We worship not a cruel and unjust God, but a loving God who, as Paul writes, has poured himself into us. And we see that in the cross upon which we will meditate more intently in just a few weeks on Good Friday. The cross reminds us of the lengths to which God goes not to be removed from our suffering, but a God who comes to be in the midst of our suffering alongside us, who, when we suffer, wants to, us to give, us, give him our pain. So in giving our pain to him, he can comfort us and hold us and strengthen us and build us and give us endurance and character and hope not found through our unanswered questions, but through our trust that God's love is bigger than all of it. God's love is bigger than disaster and untimely death. God's love is bigger than a crumbling relationship or a lost job. God's love is bigger than my pain and suffering. It's bigger than your pain and suffering. In his hands, the great sculptor always can create a work of art out of the most unseemly useless bit of clay. For me, um, what I'm trying to share with you today is told so well in a book by Peter DeVries entitled The Blood of the Lamb. Some of you may know the book. And the climactic point is when the 10-year-old daughter of a man and woman is diagnosed with leukemia. Now, uh, the ravages of that terrible disease as it began to set in was too much for the mother. She couldn't stand it, and so she abandoned the little girl, leaving both the father and the child heartbroken and in despair. The father was then left alone to face the pain of his daughter, and he committed himself to making her last days her best days, as meaningful as possible. As her birthday approached, he was so anxious to make it a special event. He asked her what she wanted. He carefully purchased each gift exactly as she had requested he had each one beautifully wrapped. He went to the store. He ordered her favorite kind of chocolate cake and had it decorated with candles. And her name, something to let her know that despite the un apparent unfairness of it all, everything she was living through, that she was still identified. She was still known. She was still loved. He got it all together and set out early for the hospital in order to make the whole day special. But no sooner had he gotten off the elevator, then he could sense something was wrong. As soon as his face met those of the four nurses, their appearance turned ashen. And then the head nurse came over and said, we tried to get in touch with you, but you must have left home early. And he said, what's happened? And she tearfully answered, 30 minutes ago, your little girl died. And he could not believe it. Her death day and her birthday occurring at the same time. He had to be with her, so 
he came into the room with that cake and those presents and he stood looking at the frail, lifeless body of his precious child. The overwhelming grief and pain and unfairness of it all was almost more than he could take. He stumbled out of the room, his eyes filled with tears. Now it so happened that this was a Roman Catholic hospital and at the end of the hall stood a life-sized statue of Christ with arms outstretched, etched beneath the figure with the words we have outside of our doors. Here, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. It was a word that struck the father at that moment as utterly ridiculous, totally and completely absurd. And in a moment of incredible anger, the man took that chocolate cake and threw it into the face of Christ. Now, this was a good man, and no sooner had he done it than he recoiled in horror, thinking to himself, what have I done? What kind of sacrilege have I committed? What kind of heavenly law have I broken? But what had happened? What had happened? At that moment, he dared to allow all that he was to be thrown squarely at that image of compassion. And then through tear-filled eyes, he saw something unbelievable. Those hands that were extended slowly began to move and gently and deliberately they made their way to the face. And then they began to wipe away the cake that had been thrown there. And when the eyes of the sculpture Jesus became visible, the father saw to his amazement that they were brimming over, not with anger, but with tears of sadness with the Father. Once again, Jesus was a source of generosity, of love. Once again, Jesus was offering himself as the source of healing and hope and new and deeper life, stretching out his own wounded arms to that pain that was brought to him. I can look around and see, with a few exceptions, the average age here this morning is a little older. Uh, a lot of those young, young ones are off on spring break. Um, and I suspect no one of us comes here today without some wound, some sin, some question, some burden free of the exhaustion that comes with trying to make sense of a broken marriage or a wayward child, what seems like a dead-end job or a treadmill-like existence. And I would ask you, what would you throw in the face of Christ? What would you pitch his way when we have suffering, when we have wounds, when we have those moments may cause grief or despair or anger, we really only have two choices, to entrust those things, those wounded and suffering places to the one that Isaiah says was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or we can just keep holding on to that suffering, finding only the emptiness of a void that knows not what it means to suffer. You are not without resources. 
You do have somewhere to go. You do have someone to whom you can go. He can see places you may not see right now. He can take you places that you never would have dreamed. He who makes all things new can see life where you cannot see it. So in the end, the question to ask is not why, but when it happens, what to do? Trust. Trust that God is enough. God is willing to take it and transform it and like the alchemist changes coal to diamond or dust to gold, he can transform suffering to hope through his divine love. Let me end with a, a beautiful bit of verse that was written in the 1500s by Teresa of Avila, Spanish mystic. She wrote these words, let nothing disturb you. Nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God is enough. Why bad things happen, I, I do not know. When bad things happen, what to do? Hand them over to God. Hand them over to God. God is enough. God is enough. Amen. Thanks for listening. The Wayside Podcast is a ministry of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. It was created by Ryan Presley and the Reverend Wesley Arning. It is executive produced by Robert Killingsworth. The theme music was written and recorded by Robert Killingsworth. If you're interested in life at St. Martin's, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at St. Martin's Episcopal Church.